Hello and welcome to episode number 291 of the Armin Show podcast, where it is always interesting, science, creatives, what makes life worthwhile, that's what I like to look at, and speaking with people because I'm very people-oriented. On this episode, we have Dr. Brennan Spiegel. He's the author of VRX, How Virtual Therapeutics Will Revolutionize Medicine. It's about virtual reality as far as its relation to healthcare. Dr. Spiegel, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. This is a wonderful thing. Virtual reality is a cool term that has been used in recent years and is super current and in the near future with items like Oculus by Facebook. But before we get into that, I believe you are a gastroenterologist. How did you get into that field? How did you get to where you are today? Uh, yeah, so I'm a GI doctor. Um, knew I wanted to do GI in uh, medical school. Um, and a lot of people go into GI because they wanted to be surgeons, but maybe didn't want to get up that early in the morning and uh, still like to do procedures, but also like the cognitive aspects of medicine. And, um, you know, as we know in GI, uh, many conditions are caused by uh, abnormalities in the connections between the brain and the gut. We call this the brain-gut axis. And conditions like irritable bowel syndrome often can improve with uh, therapies that some think of as psychological therapies, um, whether it's medical uh, psychological therapies or, or cognitive behavioral therapy. And virtual reality, it turns out, is a platform that can augment typical medical therapies for brain-gut problems like IBS and functional abdominal pain and many, many other conditions that we'll probably talk about today. So that's how I sort of got interested in virtual reality as a gastroenterologist, was applying it for some of my patients with chronic abdominal pain. Now, chronic abdominal pain, what usually leads to that? What kinds of conditions can people have that would lead them to go to a gastroenterologist in the first place? You know, there's many conditions. The most common condition we see in GI is irritable bowel syndrome or IBS where there's recurrent abdominal pain or discomfort uh, associated with you know, constipation or diarrhea. Very common condition affects about 10% of the population. Um, and we don't exactly know what causes it. Uh, bacteria have something to do with it, diet, uh, but also abnormalities in the way the brain and the gut are connected. But there are many other conditions, Crohn's disease, ulcerative colitis, acid reflux disease, um, and those all can cause different forms of abdominal pain. And so, you know, medications can help with all those, but sometimes mind-body therapies can support our medical treatments. Mm -hmm. Now, I've noticed this theme in your book and what it can be. How far can we go with the brain processing something mentally and it leading to biochemical processes happening that are healthy in some form? Yeah, so there's this old idea that the brain and the body are sort of separate and apart. And the old idea comes originally from the mid-1600s from René Descartes, the French philosopher, who created this philosophy called dualism, where he said, well, you know, the brain is immaterial and kind of not made of anything. And then there's the material body. And they communicate in some mysterious way. And that dominated a Western medicine for most of its history. 
And so, you know, more recently we've come to realize that's just wrong. The brain and the body are connected. And chemical changes in the brain, neurochemical changes in the brain, undoubtedly and directly affect the body. The immune system, the nervous system, the endocrine system, every part of the body is affected by changes in the brain. And of course, changes in the body affect the brain in return. So we now know that if we can modify the brain, uh, we can modify the body and vice versa. The thing that came to my mind in the first place when I was reading is how foolable is the brain? Is it fooling the brain or is it, is it creating like a virtual world that it thinks it's in? Where are we going with that? Uh, well, you know, we all live in virtual reality every day of our lives. Mm -hmm. So just imagine, you know, the picture that you can pull up into your head right now of your best friend or a trip that you've been on. I can't see that. I can't see that image. Only you can see that image. Is it a real image or is that a virtual image? So virtual reality is part of everyday life. Uh, and it's a part of our ability as humans to imagine uh, experiences. And we can imagine positive supportive experiences like being on a beach or swimming in the ocean, or we can imagine really a destructive or catastrophic experiences, and that could lead people to be very anxious or depressed. What virtual reality does is not really fool the brain. It allows people when they're often vulnerable in pain and distress to access their ability, natural ability, to um, experience a different world, a world that's more supportive and healing, and what we find is when we use virtual reality for people in distress, for example, people in pain in the hospital, and allow them to be on a beach, that their pain reduces, not just when they have the headset on, but even long after the headset comes off, for a period of time, the pain subsides and it persists like that for a while. One thing that came to my mind while I was reading, it made me think of phantom limb syndrome and how you feel something that's not there that was there is virtual reality going to connect with that concept and make people not have that feeling when their actual limb is gone yeah so in the first chapter of the book i talk about this experience that i had where i went to university of barcelona and visited mel slater who is a professor of virtual reality and he had me um completely separated from my body. I floated up to the ceiling and looked down on my body. I had a complete out of body experience. So this wasn't just phantom limb, this was phantom body. And it was really bizarre. And I described the, the experience and I spend the next part of the book trying to unpack what happened in my brain that caused me to feel like I had vacated my body and even had died. Um, and that it was almost a mystical experience. And part of the science does tra track back to phantom limb. And I talk about that. Uh, Ramachandran is a scientist at University of UC San Diego who developed a treatment for phantom limb pain where you use a mirror and you look at your healthy intact arm or limb and then you see in the mirror a reflection and your brain thinks that that amputated limb is now back connected to your body. So this is used for people who have had an amputation and feel like their arm is still there. And the, the mirror can restore the feeling 
like your arm is still there. And in fact, virtual reality is being used as a digital therapy, a digital mirror therapy now to restore the feeling of a lost limb. But also it can cause you to feel in the opposite direction, like you have now vacated your limbs, vacated your body. So it can be used in both directions uh, for very interesting purposes. There's a fun in relation, in relation to anatomy. Another category is that you speak about in the book, addictions and usage of opioids. How can the brain be fooled in this capacity? Is it like you are having a substance without having the substance? Yeah, so using VR for pain management has been one of its biggest, uh, biggest opportunities. And of course, we have an opioid epidemic um, that was, you know, preceded the pandemic we're in now and will persist after this pandemic. The uh, opioid epidemic has not gone away. So we desperately need um, safe and effective therapies to either substitute for opioids or at least be used together with opioids to help reduce the doses over time. And I wouldn't say that VR is some magic wand that can get somebody off of opioids, but we have seen that in some people, when they use virtual reality, it can help reduce the doses. Or in some cases, for example, after somebody's had an operation, you know, and they come out of the operating room, oftentimes the first thing that happens is they get treated with opioids. And they may never have been on opioids in their whole life. And now they're taking opioids after a surgery. And in fact, after only one day of opioids, there's already a 6% chance that you will become dependent upon those opioids a year later. And after a week of opioids, that risk just accelerates quickly. So what if we could use virtual reality when somebody comes out of the operating room to help reduce their need for opioids right out the, right out the gate and reduce the um, risk of dependence? So that's another area where people are starting to look at virtual reality um, in the hospital to help mitigate um, the doses of, of opioids. I like this. For many years, I've thought about how many brain pathways that we or routines that we go through over time it's almost like we're following our own cycle separate from the earth so we might as well adjust that with virtual systems that adjust your own internal cycle that's separate from the earth and then you can solve your bad habits in some form one thing that was a separate category was which i was very into was fear management or risk taking and how if you could have it where in life you wouldn't take that risk or push beyond a certain limit of your own in the virtual world you could uh, do like gradations of risk until someone has adapted can you speak on that topic yeah so this is called virtual exposure therapy mm -hmm. and it's a it's based upon a old time-tested approach for managing phobias uh, for example, fear of snakes or spiders or fear of heights. You know, the treatment for those things is to gradually get exposed to the very object of your fear. So uh, if you're afraid of heights, well, the way to handle that is to slowly get closer and closer to the edge of a tall building until you finally can stand there. But that's hard to do. First of all, it's hard to organize doing that because you literally need to go to a building or go to a canyon or whatever. 
And if you have a therapist, you know, they're not going to leave their office and easily travel with you on an airplane where you fear of flying. But in virtual reality, you can simulate those experiences flying on a plane, which I write about in the book, which is called VRX, uh, the name of the book. Or if you are uh, on a, you know, the side of a canyon, and you can slowly and steadily uh, become increasingly exposed. Plus, um, and as I write about in the book, you can also use biosensors. So you can monitor heart rate and monitor stress levels and give feedback to people so they can see that after practicing for a while, their stress response goes down to the point where they can very easily um, stand on a building or fly in an airplane. Uh, and it's an extremely effective use of virtual reality that many therapists are using and have been using for several years now. Yes. How far can the adjustment through virtual reality go? Or is it meant to be a therapeutic kind of like some sort of medicine that people would take? Because let's say it's a virtual form of a social connections that give people lower stress. Is it more temporary or a little bit? Or would it be to replace? Could we get to the point where that replaces social interaction in some form? Or is it more like a temporary solution? Yeah, well, we certainly don't want people living in virtual reality indefinitely. That brings up dystopian visions of from movies like Ready Player One, for example, uh, the book and the Steven Spielberg movie where people have ignored their real life to live in these fantastical virtual worlds and play games and so on. That's not our goal in healthcare virtual reality. Maybe it is for Oculus and, you know, they want people living in their headsets playing games all the time. Uh, no, we see this as a more temporary thing where in virtual reality, you can learn something about yourself that hopefully you can then take with you outside of virtual reality. So for example, we teach cognitive behavioral therapy skills in virtual reality. For example, uh, learning how to breathe um, and having biofeedback from the breathing where the headset can detect your breathing on the microphone and you can breathe life into a dying tree, for example. And through that process, you can keep track of how it's making you feel physically and emotionally. And then when you practice that, the next time you're in a stressful environment, you try to summon that skill that you learned in VR. Uh, but not have to go back to VR every single time you want to relax, but instead you learn things and you learn that your, your brain does have powerful control over your body and your experience of pain, anxiety, depression, fear, that you can control that. Um, and that VR is just a tool to help people train their mind and body quicker and more effectively than uh, with just traditional like talk therapy or just traditional medical therapy. Mm -hmm. It seems like a good way to build habits. I had spoken with James Nestor about his book, Breath, and he recommended nose breathing. And uh, he talked about the benefits of that versus mouth breathing. Yeah. And that might be an example that would be applied in the virtual world to get you to breathe yeah, one way and not the other. Exactly. So I just read that book as well. It's a fun book, interesting book. Um, I try to sleep with my mouth closed now, I guess. Um, and yeah, it's, um, it's a similar 
concept that there's some kind of health behavior that we're trying to teach in different situations. And VR is a platform to help teach that. So in another context, for example, we use virtual reality to treat high blood pressure. And you might think, well, how can VR do that? Right. Well, there's lots of interesting ways, but the approach we took was to focus on a health behavior. And it had to do with salt intake in the diet because we know high salt diet can lead to high blood pressure. So it's one thing to just teach people about that or to give them a, a brochure or show them a video. But what we did is we had people get in VR and they watched as they, as salt entered their body, they flew through their body and they watched the salt erode their heart and their blood vessels, their kidney, their brain. And they actually found out what's happening in their body. And when they came out of their body, they um, were in a kitchen and they started to learn about how to reduce salt in their diet. And it's a very emotional experience. And what we ended up finding was that the systolic blood pressure dropped by seven points over the course of a three month period when people use this VR program. So whether it's breathing through your nose instead of your mouth, or whether it's a, trying not to ruminate about, about negative catastrophic, catastrophic thoughts in your mind, or reducing salt, these are all health behaviors that VR can help um, set straight. Mm -hmm. Is one of the biggest advantages about VR that it is higher bandwidth than the other methods we have been using before, like direct communication or uh, through like description or like text? You mean in terms of changing health behaviors, like through mm -hmm. text messaging and that sort of thing? Sort of like it's like a direct link to the brain as opposed to yeah. informing someone to do to try something. Right. That's right. And the idea is that when you're in virtual reality, if it's done correctly um, with a high quality experience, your brain literally feels, literally thinks that it's in that world. Even if you know intellectually that I'm not really, you know, on a beach right now. I'm really in a conference room or in my house or in a hospital room. Your brain doesn't know any better. And this term is called presence. And that's the psychological term that the brain like and body are literally embodied within this environment. And so um, what that leads to is a different level of engagement and emotional learning. And when you are, are exposed to a strong emotion, you're much more likely to learn something, whether it's a positive emotion or a negative emotion, you're much more likely to remember whatever it is that you're learning at that moment. Um, so what VR it does, it's an emotionally evocative platform, much more powerful than a text message or a computer program on a two-dimensional screen or a video. It immerses the brain and triggers the learning centers through emotional engagement of the amygdala, the emotional centers in the brain. And this has been seen with MRI scans of the brain when people go into virtual reality, that it can affect not just the sensory cortex where you're feeling pain, for example, but also the emotional centers in the brain. Um, the emotional pain can be reduced as well in virtual reality. This links with the empathy chapter you had written about and it's slightly disconnected from just healthcare, but is that not a cool feature that it'll allow people to experience conditions they are not in in full, which is something we don't really have in current time? 
Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I talk about this, as you mentioned in the book, VRX, where talk about the ability of VR to actually enhance empathy between patients and their providers, unlike many technologies th these days, where the technology kind of interferes with the relationship, where, for example, I might have to use a computer electronic health record, and I'm busy typing away, and I might have my back to a patient as I'm facing a computer screen. VR is a, is a screen where we face each other. And I have a chapter about how VR can be used to enhance the doctor's or clinician's understanding of their patient's emotional lives, physical lives, social lives, by simulating what it's like to live in their shoes. And it's a very powerful opportunity, not only for doctors to be more empathic with their patients, but for patients to be more empathic with themselves. And I talk about some interesting opportunities where you can do self counseling in VR, for example, and uh, gain insights about yourself that you might not have gained through uh, any other type of technology. As this, we're at the end of, near the end of 2020, and it looks like we're coming upon a very hyper-connected decade of smooth flow in many regards. What does it look like as far as the timeline of implementing these kinds of therapeutics in healthcare? Yeah, well, that's a great question. And the way I often answer this question is, we don't need a lot more science to start using this. We already have over 5,000 studies, and I summarize about three or 400 of them in the book. Um, we, you know, it's always gonna be exciting to get more and more research, but at this point, we know VR has a role to play. The challenges are not scientific, they're more about who's gonna pay for this? How are we going to implement this? Who's going to be the clinician who's in charge of this? Is there a new type of doctor called the virtualist, uh, which is what I call this person? Right. So we actually at Cedar sinai have been uh, using a VR consult service for the last several years. It's been a research service, but now we're developing an actual clinic with a virtualist who can see these patients and use the virtual reality as part of routine, regular care, both in the hospital and on the outpatient side. Um, and we now have over 200 hospitals throughout the U.S. that are using VR, everything from using it in the emergency room to using it during childbirth for labor and delivery, which is an area we've focused on at Cedar sinai as well. Um, so there's many, many hospitals using it. We do need insurance companies to start paying for it. And when they do, and they're starting to, uh, I think we'll see an explosion in use uh, beyond what we're seeing now. So I'm hoping that we'll see more and more of this over the uh, upcoming years. Mm -hmm. Is a possible example, a person at home a few years from now who goes into a virtual reality system and is almost able to, I'm not say diagnose, but figure out what they're dealing with, uh, like almost look into themselves way more than they would be able to today by themselves? Yeah, uh, that could happen now. Uh, we're doing a study right now, supported by the National Institutes of Health, NIH, where we are sending these kits home. And that's particularly important during COVID-19 and quarantine where people don't have access to healthcare as easily as they usually do, or in rural environments, for example, where we can send this out to their home and they can experience cognitive behavioral therapy right in their home. Um, by having a daily class in virtual reality where they can learn about themselves as part of the curriculum 
um, and learn different skills. And there are some really interesting software programs, uh, some of which I talk about in the book, where you can actually um, sit across from another person, whoever you want. You can sit across from Mother Teresa or, or Sigmund Freud or whoever you want and have a conversation with them. And what's crazy is you switch back and forth. You can actually get into the body of Mother Teresa or Sigmund Freud or whoever you want and counsel yourself. And it turns out that that is a very powerful way for people to learn about themselves by feeling like they're, they have removed themselves from their own body and are looking back at themselves and can give themselves um, therapy, self-therapy. It's like interacting, but then cutting out the ego and then getting more yeah. insight. That's right, exactly. One thing we mentioned a, a little bit ago is that the science is already there and the application is the item. How is it, would you say that at this current moment, science is way ahead in some categories and the application is the lagging element? Yeah, a lot of the science has been very sophisticated and conducted in you know, research laboratories and elite universities around the world, usually in psychology laboratories. But the software until recently hasn't been as sophisticated, but we're now starting to see an explosion in new software programs that are available through you know, the Oculus Store, for example, on the Oculus Go or the Oculus Quest or other commercially available um, uh, systems. We've created a website with our favorite VR programs um, and uh, people, the, the companies don't pay to get on this list. This is a list that we just like. So if you go to virtualmedicine.org, that's our website. And up at the top, there is a link for clinical resources. And uh, you can go and find our favorite VR programs that we've been using. And we hope to expand that list as more and more programs get more and more sophisticated um, and available, uh, but even the ones we have now are pretty are pretty darn good. One thought that comes to mind is, as healthcare is developing this category, at the same time, Facebook and such will be reaching into as much as they can in the virtual reality space. Is there parts that will overlap, or it's more so healthcare is separate and social networking is separate, and they won't really overlap in some form? Yeah, it's an interesting question. And I think Facebook has been um, a little hesitant to get too far into the healthcare space uh, for a number of reasons. Although it's interesting, they do have a chief medical officer uh, who works there and is involved in understanding the biomedical applications of Oculus and other Facebook platforms. Uh, I think where people get worried about Facebook is, of course, data privacy and there we have to be very careful, especially when we're prescribing apps to patients and you know, following HIPAA rules regarding data privacy. Uh, and I think we still have some work to figure out whether Facebook or whether they are not uh, a good partner on that, on that front. Um, some companies that are developing VR uh, programs and are going to the FDA to get clearance um, are not working with Facebook, but rather are preloading their software in a kiosk mode headset and you buy the headset. Uh, my concern there is, you know, I don't want to have to uh, buy 12 different headsets for 12 different programs. I want to be able to load them all down into one headset. And that's where mm -hmm. Oculus has a real advantage. I've noticed that in every field, there tends to be one or two main players because we cannot deal with so many options. Right. It would like one or two at most. 
we've mentioned you mentioned a couple of scientists along this way i always like to check who are a few scientists who have uh, inspired you in some form or do any come to mind where you have modeled some of their career or looked at them for information yeah well certainly i could answer that both within vr and outside of vr but since we're talking about vr today i'll mention some of the um, real leaders in this space who I also profile in VRX, the book. Mm -hmm. uh, Diane Gromala uh, um, of Simon Fraser University in Vancouver has done really remarkable research. Um, she herself has chronic pain and she's been very open about discussing that. And she has a TED talk where she talks about her chronic pain and how she's turned to virtual reality to help treat herself. And she's developed some ingenious VR programs, uh, interactive programs where she uses a biosensor to measure stress levels. And as you um, get into like a beautiful environment with maybe a, a jellyfish, the jellyfish will uh, metaphorically change in direct relationship to your stress level. So I talked about some of her work in the book and she's done some terrific and interesting research. Professor Mel Slater at the University of Barcelona is a true leader in this field. Uh, and I, what I really admire about him is he's really deeply embedded in the science. And whether the result is a positive study or a negative study, he's about trying to get the truth out, what works, what doesn't work. Because we have to be careful about over-promising a technology like VR, making it seem like it's some kind of miracle technology, when it's not. It's, it's just something that we're learning about. And he is a great role model for very scientifically approaching uh, virtual reality. So there's many others that I profile in the book like Skip Rizzo and Walter Greenleaf uh, and so many others um, working across the field uh, who I admire. I like they mentioned that because there's always some key buzzwords every few years like Bitcoin will solve everything and then virtual reality has the answer and then robotics will, uh, but it takes a moment and then I feel like like the science is a bit ahead and then uh, society takes a while to catch up. It's much slower than thought with any sort of technology. Yeah, well, there's the, um, the Gartner hype cycle, which some of your listeners uh, may be familiar with, which every technology goes through where you have this peak of inflated expectations where everything feels like it's a miracle. And then you start looking at the technology and realizing, oh, maybe it wasn't as good as we thought and you fall into the trough of disillusionment. But then the real work starts at that point. They start figuring, okay, it's not a miracle, but it can't be useless either. And that's when you start going up the slope of enlightenment, it's called. And I think VR has worked its way up the slope of enlightenment and um, is now at this sort of plateau where we do feel that it can certainly help patients. It's not a miracle, but if it used the right treatment the right patient at the right time it can really help augment traditional medical therapies sounds like it i always like to check in closing what is let's say you had a megaphone to all the people on the planet and you wanted to provide one message about where virtual reality can take us in the category of healthcare what would you tell all people you know what i would say is that um medicines matter but uh the mind is medicine too and that we should respect the power that the mind does have over the body and that this isn't voodoo science this is actually modern neuroscience and that 
virtual reality is just one platform that can help leverage the power of the mind and give us an ability that we naturally all have to help manage some of the toughest things we have to go through in life and that we have that ability within us. But VR just helps us realize it and helps bring it out of us uh, in a way that can be, can be healing. That's a nice message for us to take in. Dr. Brendan Spiegel, author of VRX, How Virtual Therapeutics Will Revolutionize Medicine. I would like to thank you for having come on this episode of the show. Thanks for having me. And we are out.